You're in the right room if you are looking to hear CSP's 19th annual One Month Scholar. Yes. If you're looking for the intramural badminton tournament, that's down the hall on the courts. Our topic for the whole month is Fulfilling the Dream, the Fascinating Story of Modern Israel. And we've dedicated the whole month in honor of Roz and Elliot Vogelfanger, who are here, contrary to rumor. Where are Roz and Elliot? Yeah. More about them in a second. So, um, what do I want to say? I want to tell a few words. There's some people who don't know about CSP. So CSP stands for Community Scholar Program, and this is our 19th annual one-month scholar, and we're celebrating our 19th year of programs in Orange County. So if this is your first year, you've missed about 500 just one-month scholar programs and 750 or so programs. The good news is we do have a podcast on iTunes, and we record over 200 programs, so you can make up some of what you've missed if you go to OCCSP on iTunes. Um, this particular 19th annual program is supported by an impact grant from Jewish Federation um, and um, made possible by the Leon Ninberg Estate. It's also partially funded uh, by a grant from the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, so I wanted to thank the Federation and the Community Foundation for supporting us, this one-month program throughout our community. If you haven't seen our brochure, we have extra copies outside, but uh, the professor is doing 30 or so presentations. He'll be speaking at almost every synagogue in Orange County, so, um, and doing a series of programs for CSP as well. I want to thank the Mirage JCC for co-sponsoring our opening night. Thank you to Scott Braswell and JCC. Um, I do want to take a quick moment to remember Joe Babe. I don't know if, if people have heard, he did pass away just a few days ago. He was a supporter of CSP and in many of our institutions in Orange County. He will be missed and I wanted to make sure that, uh, to bring that up. I also wanted to mention that one of our longtime board members and a friend of many of yours, uh, Polly Sloan, who turns 95 in just a few days, a few weeks, um, unfortunately fell and hurt herself and she broke seven ribs. Um, and she's at, um, she has, she's getting care right now. I spoke to her today, but uh, I'm pretty sure it, that if you'd like to um, meet her or hang out with her, if you're a friend of hers, she would appreciate that. So you can e email me and I'll tell you where she is and, and how you can go see her. But I do want to mention that Polly is, um, an incredibly important person for our community and particularly for CSP, very longtime board member. And when we announced that we were being part, we're gonna be part of the legacy program for the Community Foundation, she was the first person to sign a letter of intent. I wanted to thank you who are our donors and our patrons for CSP. Uh, as, for those of you who don't know, our funding primarily comes from individuals in Orange County and we have different membership levels we do get a grant from the Federation and Foundation, but 85% of our, our funding comes from you. So I wanted to thank you, patrons and members, and I appreciate your support. You've, uh, you know, when we started CSP uh, in 2002, uh, I could not imagine that we'd be closing in our 20th year, and it's because of you, so thank you so much. If you're not a member of our Legacy Circle, we have close to 100 people um, in the Legacy Program. It's an awesome way to give back to the community as a whole because there, you can participate in many different institutional legacy programs through the foundation's program, including CSP. There are benefits, uh, particularly uh, when the one-month scholar is in town, you get to come to certain events. And as I've mentioned before, studies have shown that if you join a legacy circle, you live longer. So 
Um, I think that's a great benefit. That should be the only benefit. Please join our legacy circle. I know that the JCC has a legacy program, and um, many of your synagogues are participating in the program, so you can, do, you can sign one letter of intent and say you will do something for the institutions one day, because you're going to live long lives, ad mea lea stream into 120, and leave something if you, to the community institutions that you value. So after the program, there'll be a, a desk set up for me, if you want to know, get more membership information or legacy information about CSP outside. Um, if you are listening to this on podcast, please consider making a donation to CSP at www.occsp.org. For those of you here in the audience, we do have people who listen to our programs across the country and overseas. Um, I want to thank our check-in team led by Rosella and Ada and Davida. Thank you for manning the crowd tonight. And um, I do want to call Roz and Elliot Vogelfanger come up real quick. I wanted to thank you in front of everybody. They just got off the cruise, so they, they're a little wobbly. The room is swaying for them. Come up right here. So I know that many of you do know Roz and Elliot. If you don't know, these are pillars of our Jewish community. They are pillars of the CSP community. Roz is a past board member of CSP. They walk the walk. They don't just talk the talk. They support many institutions in Orange County. They support Israel. They um, are committed to Jewish learning. And really, it's my pleasure to honor you and dedicate the whole month to you and Elliot. Uh, the only drawback is you have to go to every program. And there's 30. There are a few repeats. It's okay. Um, but really, you are beloved members of the community. Thank you for coming from the boat. I can't touch her from the boat. Even though this is not planned, I would like you all to know there would not be this phenomenal program without Ari Katz. And he, he is the kind of community member that we only dream of. And he has fulfilled the dream here beautifully all these years. He sent us a 300 or so page proposal, probably doesn't even remember that, some 20 years ago, but a phenomenal lay leader, extraordinaire. Thank you, thank you. Thank Don't you. go anywhere. Oh. So I was trying to figure what gift to just, uh, you know, acknowledge the night and when they see it, they'll remember this night. And um, it's actually over there in the corner. So I need two volunteers from the front row who are capable of picking it up. Okay, we got one, we got another. Okay, so and this ties into the theme of our one month. So hopefully you'll find a place to put this. You can kind of throw the paper down. Yes, and then bring it over at the correct, like, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you can see that. It's kind of an angle. Bring it over here. You guys come here and you can look in. So this is from the same artist in Tel Aviv who made your notebooks that I gave out. And um, it's called Crossing... And it's, it's a play on Abbey Road, so it's Allenby Road. Uh, and the artist has uh, four Israeli figures there crossing the road, including Herzl, Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, and Moshe Dayan. Uh, and that's Tel Aviv in the background. And I just thought uh, that it was kind of an awesome way to uh, visually start our one month and for you guys to remember this one month celebration of you guys. So please enjoy. We're going to get a photo. You have to stand next to it, so we'll get a photo of you guys holding it up. And then we'll need volunteers to tie it to the top of the car and bring it to their house. Okay, you guys stand next to it over here, Roz and Elliot. Okay, Mark, Berman, we'll take your photo. 
Okay. Yes, and you know, I've been driving around for a month in my car with that. It's just a... Uh, okay, I need the volunteers back. We'll move it back to the corner and then do not forget to take it home with you, please. You may have to buy a new, what, a new car? Okay, we'll get it home, we'll get it home. If anybody has a big car here, would like to drive it to the Vogelfangers, that'd be great. Thank you guys, enjoy tonight, enjoy the month. We'll be celebrating you. Okay, so uh, one month, what are we gonna do? Our topic, fulfilling the dream, the fascinating story of modern Israel. Uh, this is our opening night. We do have, it's unusual this year, but because the topics are so fascinating, we have three um, multiple, uh, multiple course courses, if that makes sense to you, open to CSP members. It's all in the materials. If you're a CSP member and haven't signed up, um, please see me after the program at the membership desk. If you would like to become a member and attend the classes, you can see me at the membership desk as well. Uh, we, have a, we had a very big sign-up from our members for the program, so we had to move it. So even though your program says that all the programs are here, we can't fit in the room upstairs. So... Uh, those of you who signed up, I sent you an email where to go this week. Do not show up here on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. You know where to go because I emailed you. If you didn't get the email, see me and I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was if you are a CSP patron or a member of our Legacy Circle, as I mentioned earlier, there are benefits. We have a special dinner with Professor Lips on January 18th. And I hope uh, you will, if you haven't signed up yet to join us, you will do that and you will uh, enjoy our private evening with a scholar. Each year we'd like to have a private time for our patrons in our legacy circle. Upcoming programs I wanted to mention, our 14th annual CSP adult retreat um, will, will take place this year, February 16th through 17th, with Dr. David Kramer at the Laguna Cliffs Marriott Resort and Spa. Spa. Dr. Kramer is a Joseph J. and Dora Abel uh, librarian and professor of Talmud and Rabbinics at the Jewish Theological Seminary. His topics will be Jewish eating and identity through the ages, Rare Gems of Jewish Culture, Hebrew Manuscripts, and the Secrets of um, Jewish Cultural Survival. Judaism and Christianity, What Are the Real Differences? And Judaism and Islam, the shared, a shared tradition. So if you haven't signed up, if you're a patron, that program, that stay at the hotel and the four programs and all the meals is included. If you're not a patron, you can join us for an extra fee. And we have materials for that at our membership desk as well. Um, we have a very special one-week artist-in-residence program coming up, February 21, 28. Uh, John Adam Ross, creator of the Inheritance Project, will be in town for a series of programs uh, on the topic Sacred Text as a, as a Stage for Community Building. It's funded by a grant from the Albert and Rhoda Weissman Arts Endowment Fund, a joint program of the Jewish Community Foundation, Orange County, and Jewish Federation. CSP will have a special program with John Adam Ross on February 26th, where we'll focus on tribalism and immigration and uh, John Adam Ross and an associate will be doing programs throughout the community, in the schools, and in many of your, in some of your synagogues, so I hope you will attend. Daniel Matt will be back in town. He was our CSP summer scholar um, quite a few years ago. He'll be in for a um, weekend series starting March 13th to 15th, co coordinated by Rabbi Kavod Weeder from Temple Beth El. And uh, CSP is hosting the lunch program on that Friday, entitled Elijah the Prophet, the Man Who Never Died. Uh, those of you who don't know, Daniel Matt is one of the most important people in contemporary uh, translation of the Kabbalah. He single-handedly translated the whole Zohar. I think it took him seven to ten years. He has finished that project and doing other projects now. He is a terrific speaker. I hope you will join us. Jerry Dorman is here. Where is Jerry? Is she here? 
Jerry Dorman is here somewhere. She's the director of the Primetime Adult Program for the JCC, and she was handing out programs um, or uh, brochures for a program that they're running called Great Jewish Americans 101 that, uh, that they host here three times a year. And uh, I hope you will think about attending that program. Aliza Sable, I don't know if Aliza is here. Oh, there's Jerry. Okay. Aliza, I don't know if she's here, but Aliza is director of cultural arts, and um, she um, is... Uh, she dropped off some brochures for the JCC's uh, fabulous Israel film series that starts in January and goes through June. Encourage you all to uh, join and participate in those programs as well. I wanted to thank Debbie Maylene. Where's Debbie? Oh, back in the back. Debbie was a, is a former student of Professor Paul Lips. And uh, I wanted to thank you, Debbie, for helping to get the word out. And I, again, I wanted to thank the JCC for co-sponsoring tonight's evening. It's a great turnout and a tribute to uh, institutions working together. So thank you, Debbie. Okay, almost done. CSP cat, hat cap challenge. We have uh, Cliff Cornell wearing a CSP hat. And, uh, and our closing event, um, we will give out awards for the most interesting creative uh, shots of people wearing CSP hats around the world or even domestically. Um, so get your photos in, and there are great rewards and awards that will be given. Please take a moment, turn off your cell phone so that we can have an uninterrupted program. You can put it on vibrate mode if you want as well. Okay, who is our speaker tonight? Where is Paul? You're there? Okay, wait, almost. Who is Paul Lips? Uh, Professor Lips is a social historian. Um, he was on the Tel Aviv University faculty for 40 years, teaching graduate and undergraduate students in the Department of Middle East and African History and the International School, where he dealt with a wide range of topics. His main interests are history of the Yishuv, which is the pre-state Israel, the modern state of Israel, and Arab women and nationalism in the Middle East. He taught graduate students at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem for 25 years, as well as the conservative movement seminary dealing with modern Jewish history, Israeli society, and the contemporary Middle East. If you belong to a Reformed temple in Orange County, it is highly likely that your rabbi studied with Professor Lips when, they, when he or she was in Israel for the year. I know that because all the Reformed rabbis went crazy when I announced that Professor Lips was coming. So uh, when you go to your synagogue, you'll see how they fawn over their former professor. Uh, in the Israeli army services, he lectured officers and non-commissioned officers on non-military realms. He's still active in Israel and is involved in various academic and educational fields. In the last few decades, he has traveled the world extensively, lecturing and conducting workshops in some 20 countries. He has also been a visiting scholar with many American groups in Central and Eastern Europe. Professor Lips uh, was born in Rhodesia, I think now known as Zimbabwe, and came as a volunteer to Israel one day, one day, not just one, exactly one day before the Six-Day War on June 4th, 1967. He decided to stay in Israel, married Brenda, his wife, who will be here in just a few days to be uh, in our community with us. Uh, they have four children and 11 grandchildren. Please join me in welcoming to Orange County as our one-month scholar, Professor Paul Lips. Okay. You ready? Wow. I've been dreaming of you for the last 10 months, and now it's real. So what could be better than that? So when I was contacted and uh, asked if I'd like to come, Mark Dollinger, who many of you know from last year, said, you have to go, it's great. Well, it's greater than I thought. Uh, 32 sessions. If you're with me at the last session and I'm still okay, we'll know how great it was. But it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful challenge, 26 topics. 
30 of the 32 sessions are open to the wider audience. What I want to do this evening is the, not so much um, go through uh, all the aspects of my life, but rather the topics that I'll be dealing with. What happened to me, having arrived in Israel one day before the Six-Day War, uh, I was intending to go back to my job as an international trader in what was then Rhodesia, but on the third day of the war I said, I want to stay here, and I did. Now, we all know that Israel isn't a simple place, and uh, we use the word, uh, every other word we use is the word complex, and that's true. But the wonderful advantage I think I have now, rather than as I, many often happens in Israel, when I meet a group for one or two sessions, here if you're really interested in the topic, by the time you've had 26 sessions with me, you probably know more about Israel than most Israelis. So uh, that's really what I'm going to be talking about tonight. It's wonderful to see many friends here, people who I've met either in Israel or on uh, tours of Eastern Europe or Spain. Um, and I'm looking very much forward during the next month to getting to know uh, some of you even better. Please grab me at any time you want. If you have any questions, if I don't know the answer, uh, I'll uh, give you uh, Ari's email address. Um, so I want to take 10 topics uh, that I want to discuss tonight, and I'm not going to relate to the actual lectures because they appear in, in the booklets, but just to try and give you an idea of what interests me, uh, Ari and I were in communication, uh, serious communication over a long period. I sent him a list, we came back and forth, and I'm delighted with the topics that I now have, the 26 topics, because I really do believe that, having been in this realm of uh, modern Israeli history and what I'll be speaking about essentially for this month is Israel from May 1948 until today. Uh, when I'm talking about the Middle East, I'll be talking about the Middle East until an hour ago, and you'll understand why if you're following the Iranian issue in any kind of way. So I'm a very contemporary person. Modern history, for me, uh, for most people in Israel, modern is the last 200 years, and I do deal with it the last 200 years, but for this particular series, I very much want to deal with Israel from 1948 onwards. I just want to go back to what Israel was in 1948. And rather than describing it, I want to tell you about a little letter that as I started becoming interested in Israel uh, in my early years uh, as a graduate student and afterwards on the faculty of initially Hebrew University and then Tel Aviv University, I wanted to try and get a feel of how people looked at early Israel. And I opened an Israeli newspaper uh, Yidiot Achronot, one of the well-known Hebrew newspapers, uh, in May 1949. So Israel was then one year old. And I went through the letters to the editor. I spent a lot of time looking at letters to the editor because they express what people are really feeling and thinking, which is my interest. I'm very interested in trying to understand human beings in their daily life. So letters to the editor are a very good source. So I'm reading this letter to the editor, and it's a very short one. And translating it into English, it said, isn't this a great moment, May 1949, and we are still around? And I was so touched by the letter. And it didn't have to go on. And we are still around in May 1949, because the reality is when you look at the events of Israel uh, in that period, and May 1949 was just the end, a few months after the end of the year and a quarter long uh, Israeli War of Independence, 
the idea that Israel was still around was not taken uh, lightly. And we have to say that that is a whole lot different from today. Dangers in the Middle East, and I'll be talking, I've got three sessions on the Middle Eastern countries, which I've dealt with a great deal, but it's very much a different situation. Almost 71, and I've been there since Israel was 19, so for me it's just been one of these wow situations to have been in this young adventure, there's a belief, it's a real belief, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of faith to build a new, different kind of country in the turbulent Middle Eastern arena and still really not only to be around, which is in itself pretty good, but to have built a very effervescent, interesting society. But a society with challenges and a society with problems. And I think it's to our advantage as sophisticated observers of any kind of situation to recognize that you know, the old days when I remember having been employed by the Israeli foreign minister when I'd been in Israel three years, and they said to me, you can say anything you want, but make sure it's what the government believes in. I thought that was a little bit strange, and I must admit I did a few projects for the foreign ministry, and I wrote a few articles for them, and then I said, thank you very much, but I'd really like to go out and feel that I can say exactly what I want to say, and I will be saying exactly what I want to say. If you don't like what I'm saying, all it means is come to the next lecture. What I'm going to say is what I believe, what I've studied, what I've understood. I've been deeply, deeply involved and committed to the state of Israel. I learned from in a number of ways. Firstly, being at university with Israeli students. My Israeli students taught me so much about Israel. I was teaching them and they were teaching me. So it was a wonderful experience and I enjoyed my Israeli students. They're older than the American students, having many of them having been in the army, and that was wonderful. But I learned more about Israel by being uh, initially a field person in the Israeli army. I was in the Lebanon War in 1982, and afterwards I transferred to the education department. And the education section of the Israeli army taught me all those things that I couldn't have known because I hadn't gone through the school system. And if you go through a school system, you imbibe all the values of the country you're in. And if you come, as I did, only going uh, from a, a graduate onwards, uh, the Israeli army enabled me to really be an integral part of the society. And I worked with very, very interesting projects. As mentioned in my bio, I didn't deal with the military stuff. I'm not very good at, sh at shooting a gun. But the Israeli army asked me, and this is an amazing issue, asked me as a new immigrant to teach Israeli officers about Israel. And I said, what's going on? I said, I'm a new immigrant. And I remember the head of the education unit, uh, who I was very much attached to, impressed by him, he said to me, things are happening so fast in Israel. We need someone from outside to tell us what's happening to us because from inside we cannot work out really what's happened to us. So that is really my story. It's a story of a country going through tremendous change and rapid change brings about tremendous challenges. There's no such thing as you can change and everything works out well. But really, of the 10 issues that I'm going to go through, in each case, I'll be trying to take, firstly, the background of the issue. 
I'll be certainly permitting myself to be in the middle of the, of the dialogue of what I'm saying because I feel I've been deeply involved uh, in many parts of Israeli society, having been there for uh, an extended period of time. And then I'll make an analysis and sometimes even project the future. I just want to say something interesting about future. Uh, as a, a very young academic, the uh, head of the department at Hebrew University uh, asked me to come and start give a lecture uh, series, uh, a, a regular academic lecture course. Now, my Hebrew level was very, very poor. For those of you who know Hebrew, Kitabet, second level of Hebrew, is very, very limited. And in the second level of Hebrew, we had only learned the present and the past tense. So... I'm sitting there and I'm speaking to the professor and we're speaking in English because I really couldn't speak Hebrew. I was a very poor student. I tried my best, but I found languages very difficult. So I'm speaking to the professor and we're speaking in English and he says to me, uh, well, you know, I hope you'll do okay. And I said, I hope the students understand my English accent. You know, it's a kind of a different kind of accent. And he said, no, 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 under no condition. It's, this is a place of Rakivrit, only Hebrew. I said, but my Hebrew is terrible. And then I explained to him, I only know the past and the present tense. And he said to me, and I said to him, but, but sir, I, I can't speak in the future. And he said, it's a darn good idea that you're an historian because you don't have to know anything about the future. So I will try and also speak about the future. Uh, so uh, that is what my sessions are all about. T to take the issues that I'm going to be dealing with, and just a very few words on each one. Um, when uh, I was thinking, we were thinking of the three series that, that Ari mentioned. Uh, one of the series, and I'm delighted he, he wanted me to deal with this, was the Middle East. And thinking back there about nine or ten months ago, uh, I chose three topics. Iran and the Shia world and understanding the difference between the Shia and the Sunni and understanding the intricacies of Islam, I think is very important for us. You know, we're interested in our own background and our own values. I think it's very understand, and particularly as an Israeli, to understand who are the people around us, what are they thinking and how do they behave, and that will help us maybe understand, uh, you know, how we deal with some of the good days and the bad days. So I'll be dealing with Iran and the Shia. I'll be dealing with the Syrian civil war, which was clear has been a horrendous, horrendous civil war. And I'll also be dealing with Jordan, which is a different kind of case study with whom we have uh, uh, diplomatic relations, although there are certain tensions at the moment. So there's that particular trend. Those part of one of the series. The other realm that I think is very important is Israeli politics. And how do you deal with Israeli politics without going crazy? So there's, I've worked very, very hard on it because it is a complex system. It doesn't follow any rules of regular behavior. But what I've decided to do in trying to get into the essence of what Israeli politics are about is essentially to try and look at leaders. So rather dealing with a sort of a large political science approach, I'm much more comfortable trying to understand the development of Israeli politics through leaders. And Israeli leaders have been fascinating, each one. And I start off with Ben-Gurion, and I deal with Golden, and I deal with Yitzhak Rabin, and I deal with Menachem Begin. That's part of the series. Another session, I deal with Bibi Netanyahu. What's interesting about our leaders? If I took all those four leaders, 
very different kind of personalities, different backgrounds, and different ideologies. What's fascinating about Israeli leaders is that they all felt the same on one level, that they felt that the future and the destiny of the state of Israel was in their hands. And so wherever I look at them, and I did, one would look at one political philosophy or another political philosophy, regardless of who one looks at in the leadership realm, is to get into how, how they had the sense of a major, major importance, not only in terms of the state of Israel, but in terms of the Jewish people. This is a very interesting phenomenon. There are not many countries in the world where I think you would find exactly what I'm going to speak about now to mention how the leadership in Israel has felt itself responsible for the wider diaspora. Not always on the way that one might want it to be. Not always with the ideas which we and myself might really expect the Israeli government to look at diaspora jury. But the important issue, regardless once again of the tensions that exist in this realm, and we know that there are certain tensions, is a fascinating section of the Israeli foreign ministry. And because I was involved in the Israeli foreign ministry at certain times, I remember being in their center room that some of you may have, in fact, been invited into it, there's a certain part of the foreign ministry which has screens all about the room. And what are those screens? Those screens are focused into countries of the world where there are Jewish communities. And the first time when I went there, and I said, wow, you guys have a great experience. You have movies all day long. And then I was amazed to see what the pictures are. The pictures and the videos are being screened into those countries. And just to give you one of the pictures that I remember very clearly, 1979, uh, the Shah had, uh, was uh, being kicked out of Iran. Khomeini had just arrived a short time uh, before from Paris. And Tehran and the whole of Iran was an absolute crisis. And right looking at the pictures, I realized, and having discussion with the foreign ministry people in that room, I asked the question, you know, what are you viewing it for? And then I found something that only later did I understand it. They said, we are responsible for what's happening to the Jewish population in Iran. And how do I know that that's true? Because a very short time after that, I was invited by the Israeli army to give a lecture on, and that time I was very interested in Iranian politics, to give a lecture to young army officers. It, it was a four-hour session, and the request that I was asked to be involved in was to explain the situation to young Israeli army officers and ask them the following question. If you are required to be sent into Iran... Are you prepared to volunteer? Now, when I was given this idea in the morning, I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm not really the right guy for this. And they said, but this is how we do things. We have to find out whether we can be sure that we are going to have young Israeli officers from a whole range of different units to, be, to volunteer, because you could, can't force people in these kind of situations, to possibly be sent into Iran uh, to help the Jewish population if necessary. How do I know this is true? Because I was in Los Angeles a few years later, and I was giving a lecture in L.A. in a family, Iranian family, and I was starting to tell them how I know about the situation, and the people told me, 
And it was quite an amazing moment. They told me, they said there was something unbelievable. There was a story that the Jewish population had heard one from the other, that if things really turned out badly, the Israelis would come in and help. So this isn't just, this isn't foreign minister propaganda. All foreign ministries have obviously levels of propaganda. And so this is really what it is. That's why the dealing of Israel with the, uh, uh, foreign, with the, the Arab world and the, the feeling of political leaders in Israel to have a collective responsibility. You're not only responsible for your people in the country, you're responsible for the people in the wider world, means to me that to understand Israeli political leaders is very important. The third of the series will be on our immigrant groups. Our immigrant groups are a different kind of immigrant group from almost any other situation in the world. As a result of the law of return, people of Jewish background can come in under any kind of situation. So there's no green card situation. You get immediate citizenship. And the most unusual phenomenon which Israel finds itself is that whether you want the people to come or not, because not every immigrant to Israel is necessary what Israel might need at that particular time. But the situation that I'll be speaking about, and I'll be taking just the four case studies that I'm taking, Holocaust survivors coming in from 1945, where the British were trying to stop them, Yemenites coming in in 1949, we didn't know they were coming in. Overnight, the imam, the head of, of Yemen, allowed the Jews to get out. 50,000 Jews come on LL airplanes. The arrival of Beta Yisrael, the Ethiopians, who were called a very negative term in Ethiopia, the Falashas, the strangers, suddenly turned up in two plane loads. And in 1990s, the massive immigration of Russian Jews who turned up, and at a certain time, one out of every five Israelis was from Russia. Now, this has caused a tremendous, tremendous change in Israeli society. You see, unlike other countries which have decisions, like America and all other countries in the world that I know, you decide how many immigrants you want and where they can come from and what are the conditions of their coming. In the case of Israel, that doesn't exist. And the idea is, it's an historical idea which has been developed in Israeli society that this, after years and years and years and centuries of being the wandering people with no home to go to, this is going to be the moment that if people need a home, and I would wish everyone to stay wherever they live in happiness, but for those groups who need a home for one reason or the other, welcome. Please come. So this is a very interesting situation, but it brings about crises. It's not easy. What happens if the established group in Israel isn't so happy with the immigrant group? I'm not speaking in vacuum. This is the reality of the world at the moment. So what happens in the society? How do the immigrants feel when you say you're welcome? And when they come, some of the old Israelis say, you know, we really didn't know what we were getting. We might not be as welcome as we thought we should we should have been. So this tension, we talk about human tension, Israel, because they're genuine ones. So here we have the three realms, Middle East, 
politics and political leaders and the question of the immigrants. Then I'll be going, as was mentioned, out to various uh, synagogues and uh, temples uh, to give uh, a whole range of different topics. And I'll just give you the headlines of uh, some of the, the topics that I'll be dealing with. Uh, one of the topics will be trying to uh, look at Israel in terms of the wider Middle East uh, and the, the complexity of the Middle East and what is to be in Israel today with the big picture of uh, the Middle East. So that's, these are the macro issues. Let's look at the, the closer issues uh, to Israeli society. Israeli society is now a 70% Middle East, middle class, sorry, not Middle East, 70% middle class society. That is an amazing figure. You know, I've met many, many groups in Israel, and I carry on meeting every week two or three groups, and many groups come to Israel, and when I explain to them that today Israel is a 70% middle class society, many of them argue with me, which I always enjoy because I normally win those kind of arguments. So here it is, and they say that can't really be. Now, you know, I want to be honest. Middle class in Israel isn't the same as the middle class in the United States. It's not as, not, not as much money. But middle class is not only about wealth. Middle class is something else which I found to be very important in my studies, and that is faith in future. That is what middle class is also. So it's not purely an economic phenomenon, but it's something of the mind. And we know that Israelis, who actually are probably number one in the world in complaining, I say if there's ever a complaining scale, we'll be the best, that same high-level complaining society is actually the 13th happiest country in the world. And why they're happy, and here I'm not getting involved in anything to do with the United States, we have something called affordable health care. So you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know. So, so here we have affordable health care. Let's get to a university in Israel, been involved for years. Going to good Israeli universities, it costs $4,000. When I speak to my Israeli students and I ask, how much will you have in student loans? In the majority of cases, they don't know what I'm talking about because they haven't got student loans. They worked, their parents put a little bit of money in, and it was all okay. We've had that in our family. All four of our children did uh, graduate degrees. We paid for them. And we never stop reminding them when we get together on Friday night that we paid for their tuition. But they always respond, for $4,000 a year, don't get so excited about it. So that's what it is. This is giving us a push. It's given a push to Israeli society to not only get well-educated, the school system is in crisis, but once you get managed to get through the school system and get to universities, you're going to have a good chance of getting a job uh, generally speaking, quite high job security. I've done some study on this. And generally speaking, Israelis have relatively high feeling of uh, job, job security. And this has brought about a, a, the 70% uh, middle class society, what's called startup nations. It isn't all good. If you have a 70% middle class society, you have to ask who are the others, who are the 30%. And that will be coming up also. I want to give no blurring of my descriptions. Whenever I say this is true, 
If you have to ask me in your mind when I'm not giving you the full statistics, you have to ask me and think in your minds, what am I not saying? And I'll absolutely always try and do the best in terms of the 30% who aren't there. Four marginal groups that I'll be speaking about uh, in the session on, on uh, Startup Nation. The other issue in Israel, some of the other issues are much more uh, problematic. The question of Judaism in Israel. It is a minefield. That is a complex one. However you look at it, in any society, when you have different elite power groups, it becomes very, very complex. Now, the nature of Judaism in Israel is a multi-leveled factor. For years and years, people were saying, are you, are you religious or secular? Now, you know, in Israel, to say anything that only has two categories means you haven't ended your sentence. There is no such way of air providing and even starting to think of two categories. So just let me take this as one example. I could do it with other cases as well. So when you talk about Judaism in Israel, you have five categories. You have the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim. You have the modern Orthodox, religious Zionists. You have the third group who traditional. And the secular who secular but aren't really secular. And the fifth group who are ideologically secular who know why they're secular. That's what Judaism in Israel is. But that's ridiculous. That's far too simple. So just let's go back to group number one, the ultra-Orthodox. There's no such thing as ultra-Orthodox Haredim. There's the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox and the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox. But I'm not telling you the truth. Let's go back to the Ashkenazi. There's the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. But I'm not telling you the truth because there are 12 Hasidic groups. So when I'm trying to ever give a lecture on Judaism in Israel, I know it has to be a year-long course. And just speaking about the Haridim is about four or five sessions. That is really the, the reality of Israel. And as a young society, and I, I keep saying to myself, on the days when I get depressed... And I live there in a very regular life with the children and the grandchildren, the good days and the bad days. Like anyone else, there are days when I'm feeling, wow, things just aren't the way I want it. And the way I manage to sort of deal with my midnight uh, nightmares is to say, we're only 70, not even yet, we're almost 71 years old. Give us some breathing space. And slowly but surely, because I believe that things will be getting better, although on a day-to-day -day level I don't always see it, I have to say to myself, in my own involvement, in deep involvement and commitment to Israel, that I have to say to myself, I understand this complexity, I, un I know what it's about, and I know whoever one feels that these issues are important, one has to work on it to try and make it better. In a society, sitting on the sidelines is forbidden. Now, Israelis know this. Our voting pattern is between 75 to 80%. When I teach this to, my, to the American undergraduate students, they didn't what I, know what I was talking about. Um, but there's a high political involvement, and the, the, the power of Israel, if we can retain it, and that's why every day is important in what we're doing in, this, in that country, is to make sure that we carry on each group with its own particular way of believing in things, moves it forward. And Judaism and religiosity, because it's such a complex kind of realm, is one of the realms that 
the uh, end of the story has not yet been written. So I come from my bias, and my friends might come from another bias, but this is really what we have to speak about uh, Judaism in, in Israeli society. Let me go on to another topic which I think is important, and I don't think we deal enough with it. 21% of all Israelis are Arabs. Of the Arab-Israeli population, about 82% are Muslims. Then you have a Christian group and a Druze group. Now, what's happened to that Arab group, and I'll be speaking about this on, on some occasions, and you're welcome to join me uh, if you're interested in the topic. Um, the uh, Israeli-Arab society is as divided as the Jewish society. You know, sometimes one looks at minorities in the world, and you have this kind of idea that a minority is all united, or a minority is definitely A rather than B. What one has to understand about the Arab, Israeli Arab citizen, is that some of them certainly see themselves as Palestinians. Some of them, and I meet them, I've taught them in my classes, some of them do genuinely not believe that the state of Israel should exist. And they say it, and they're open about it. And some of them even stay it in the Knesset. They have a political party of 13 out of 120 members, and they have a very open voice. So you have that group of the Israeli Arab citizen. And on the other side, you have the people who I've obviously had more contact with, because we have more common ideas, who've said, we accept that Israel is here to stick around, Constantly when they hear some of their brethren in various Middle Eastern countries that Israel will be destroyed next year, they say it's rubbish, and they say about Arab countries that Arab countries are corrupt. But what the second group, who I have more contact with, say, well, we want to be full members of the Israeli society. We want to be equal members and we no longer want to be involved with the big picture of the Middle East because we want to live our daily lives. And where are we seeing the change in daily lives? In a very interesting section of the Israeli Arab population, among the women. Israeli, young Arab Israelis are going to university. 70% of all the Arab students in the various Israeli universities and colleges are women. Now, why is that important? Because many, many years ago, I started giving a course at Tel Aviv University called Women in Arab Society. I loved the course. It was fascinating. And what the course told me, because I had to get into the reality of gender studies, was that real change in society comes about because of women. Men go off and work. Men talk about all the big issues of the world. But any real societal change comes from women. Now, when I used to point this out to my male students, they always thought, you know, I was against males. And I said, no, no, I'm quite happy with my own gender. I've got no problem with that. Please, it's all about reality. Change of society is essentially a phenomenon of what is happening to women. And within the Israeli Arab society... The fact that they're going to university is causing a major, major change. Let me just give you some of the, 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 the realities of it. Rather than being prepared to be married off at 18, in some cases to their cousins, I had a wonderful Israeli woman student 
who told me, and I said to her at the end of her undergraduate studies, Where, what are you going to do with your graduate studies? She said, no go. She said, I was only allowed to come to university on one condition, that as soon as I finished my undergraduate degree, I would go back to the village to marry my cousin. That was a tough one. So it isn't always easy. And not all of Arab society is so happy that the women are going off to study. And particularly if the Arab women are leaving their villages and homes and going to live in one of the modern areas of Tel Aviv or somewhere else. But this is indicating that the change is coming about. And the nice thing about it is that now, in the early years when I had to be totally politically correct on this issue, now I can speak to Arabs and we can crack jokes with each other. We can both speak, speak about the idiosyncrasies of our own society. And I want to just tell you a good friend of mine, Muhammad Darashe, who's actually uh, quite well known in Israel now, uh, he was on a panel with me once, and um, someone in the audience asked a wonderful question. Uh, she said to him, Muhammad, tell me, um, you've given, and he'd given a, a quite hard analysis uh, of uh, how he felt as an Arab living in Israel. Uh, she said to him, what would you regard as the main challenge and the main issue in your life, expecting a very, very political answer? And Muhammad's a great guy, and he always tells the truth. And he says, i tell you what my main problem living in Israel is. We're all waiting for some big political comment. And he says, I live in the Darashe village, which is a large village of about 7,000 people. It's the one big chamul, the one big extended family there. And he says, I live next to the mosque. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, a guy goes up there and starts screaming and shouting. And he wakes me up. And he turns around to the woman who asked the question, and he said, lady, I want to tell you, if I could just shut up this guy, my life would be better. That was very interesting. And this is where we are sometimes also. So in this very tough society, ethnicity is important and religion is important. Every now and again one sees, and in some of the frameworks that I've been in, uh, it's been very, very exciting uh, to, to be with him. I must just tell you one other uh, little joke. Um, I was at a, a conference at Tel Aviv University when there was a very articulate uh, Arab student on the panel, and they, uh, the discussion got into dreams. What do people dream about? And particularly uh, groups in marginal situations. So they asked this particular Arab student, he said, what's your dream? You know, dream's a big word. So he waited for a little bit, and then he came out with such a brilliant comment. Couldn't forget it. He said, my dream is to have two children and a dog. Now, you have to understand Arab society. Arab society used to believe that a minimum of five children was uh, showing that you not really good for anything. So by saying two children, he was basically saying, I want to be a middle-class person. And the brilliance of saying a dog, you know, we all know, all of us who, who have or, or had or have dogs know that keeping dogs is a lot of time and can be quite a lot of money. That's really a statement. He was saying, rather than I want to be a regular middle-class person, he said two children and a dog and we all understand him. We understood him 100%. Now, I spoke to him a little while afterwards. And he said, you know, I didn't want to start a whole long philosophical description. I wanted to give a short answer. And I said to him, you know, your answer was brilliant. That really explained a great deal of what's happening. Why do I know it's true? Because the average size of the Israeli family is declining. 
which is a sign that they are, in fact, becoming more middle class. Still a marginal group, still got problems, no, no doubt about it. But the fact that on the socioeconomic level, they're moving forward uh, is a, is a uh, wonderful issue. Um, I think I've probably almost got to most of the 10 issues, but just one or two more. I deal a great deal, having been involved in it, and uh, I think it's a very important part of Israel, is the nature of the Israeli society. And what is the Israeli society, and where does it come from, and what influences it? So in society, in Israeli society, we speak about two institutions which have a great deal of impact on what's happening to the society, what, what the values are. The first realm of the school system the Israeli school system is very interesting. It's a divided school system. In the Jewish arena, there's the Haredi separate school system, ultra-Orthodox separate school system, which itself is divided into some sections. There's the modern Orthodox school system, and there's the secular school system, which brings in Masorti, which brings in traditional uh, values as well. So the school system isn't combining society. You come out of the schools with different kind of ideas. It's fine. That's what Israel is. For the 60% of Israelis who serve in the army, means 40% don't, important issue, but for 60% of Israelis who serve in the army, and now we're talking about full service, because it's a high number of people who go into the army but move out of the army very quickly, so they're not part of it. But the Israeli army has such a profound effect on our country. And I've always said to people, when people have come and said, you know, why are Israelis A, B, C, D, E, F, G? And there are a lot of answers, just as why are Americans or whatever they are. So obviously it's a complex answer. But I've always said, if you really want to get into the essence of who Israelis are and what they are and what they feel and how they think, you have to try and understand what the army experiences. And the army experience, remember, covers 60% of your society. And you called up. You don't volunteer. It's a different situation. If you volunteer for a military job, that's one kind of career. But if you're forced by law to go into the army, which doesn't take in everyone, because Arabs, except for the Druze group, don't have to go to the army, and the ultra-Orthodox, except for about 3,200, don't go into the army. So it's not even, there are groups who are excluded from the uh, enforcement of regulations. But for those who are in the main section of Israeli side, you have to go into the army. It is a very, very powerful experience. An experience which covers all ranges, all ranges from deep psychological crisis. Let's not even take what might be so extreme. You take a young child, girl or boy, living in a lovely apartment where mom and dad are all around to care for them, when they have their own room and their own dog and they have all the things which they might want. They're living in a world of total choice. And one day, you picked up and you leave all your clothing and all your family and all the things you've loved and all the meals you like. And you're taken into this institution where you all put on the same clothing. 
And it's known to some people to be an out, the ultimate trauma. Not only do you put on a, in a uniform, but you're sent off to go into a room in some cases with 30 other people. And the worst you've ever had until then is when your little brother slept in your room twice and you never allowed him in again. This is a, can be a traumatic situation. And this is even before we get to what military life is, which is not easy. And it, 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 we have to understand that it isn't just one of those things that happen that everyone comes out feeling great. So that's a reality. But I want to deal with the reality that I also know about. And that's a reality that happened in our family. I say it from close. It's a personal issue. So all our four, I was in the army, and all our four uh, children went into the army. Our two older boys were both officers. Uh, the oldest one became a lieutenant, and the uh, uh, second one became a major. Both of them were uh, between four and uh, five and a half years uh, in the army. And it's been very, very interesting to see what happened to them. Both of them went into high tech. Both of them have amazing abilities to stay awake for hours on end because some of the high-tech demands are forget about sleep. There's a project to do either with Australia or with the United States, and everyone has different times in the world. And I looked at our sons, those two boys in particular, who spent an extended period of time in the army, and I realized that army has given to Israeli society some of its ultimate stamina. And it, gets, it enables you to stay awake. Now, you know, I, I'm a bit pathetic. I uh, took a plane from Tel Aviv to San Francisco, uh, and I've been suffering from jet lag for the last three nights. So I'm on the phone to my wife all the time complaining, complaining about my jet lag. Well, I think our boys had jet lag for about four or five years of their lives. They never knew when it was day or night. And they never knew where they would be tomorrow. I know where I'm in tomorrow. I'm at Laguna Bay for lunch. So they didn't know. And so often I, the boys would be phoning up and saying, you know, uh, we might not be in contact with you for a few days. And that would mean in the case of our oldest son, he would be somewhere in the northern border or further north of Israel. In the sake of our second son, he would be somewhere in a plane somewhere in the world uh, delivering supplies to some country with which we have no diplomatic relations. And it was amazing. Our daughter went through and had a tough time. She's sweet, kind, nice person, very much like her mother. Uh, and uh, it was very hard for her. She was dealing with Boys who in almost every other army in the world would not be in the army. And it, it, there was a former chief of staff, Raful, a famous Raful, and he said the role of the army is to integrate society, whoever they are. And some of the kids who came from unbelievably tough backgrounds were in a unit where our daughter, coming from kind of a nice, quiet little home, was required to kind of changed them. Now, she came back the first few weeks telling words that she'd heard, but she didn't understand them. And I was delighted she didn't understand them. But as soon as she did understand them, she didn't want to go back to the base. So it was not always easy. At a later stage, she got into a wonderful program, which was preparing educational program for Russian immigrants 
to help Russian immigrants understand what army service was about. It worked out okay. Our youngest son went into, I won't go into the details, went into a very, very tough unit. Uh, uh, he wanted to be there. He survived the three and a half years. He got out, and when we sit around the dining room table until today, in the good Israeli style, the first half of the discussion is, the army is, you don't mind me using tough words, shit, but uh, I, some of us use even stronger words, but that's enough for tonight. Uh, but the, they, they would all say, but we learn things there that no other part of life could ever have taught us. I'm saying this because I think to understand the essence of the army is very, very important. And it has a major impact on much of what has actually yeah, been going on. Now, Ari said I'm not allowed to speak for two hours, so uh, I've got five minutes. Ari, is that good? I'm, I'm trying to behave myself. Um, just one or two issues uh, to conclude. The Palestinians. The Palestinians are there. <coughs> we can't deny it. And we have to deal with it. And there are different ways of dealing with it. So the dealing with the Palestinians is uh, sometimes, excuse me, all about Debbie said there was water, and she was right, so l'chaim. The um, Palestinian issue is there. And it's very important for us to try and deal with it. And there are no easy solutions. So, you know, psychologically we know that um, uh, I was in a conflict resolution unit of the Hebrew University many years ago. And we were talking about intractable situations. In conflict resolution language, intractable situation is something which, however you look at it, you believe it cannot be solved. So the Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian issue is an, seen as an intractable issue. However, we were talking in our particular group, which was subsidized by the German government because they were very interested in uh, trying to find was there any way that this particular intractable solution could be work, worked out. Uh, we took three case studies. I won't go into the whole long discussion. Our three case studies were North-South Korea, the island of Cyprus with the Greeks and the Turks, and uh, Northern Ireland, Belfast. And we were trying to work out how do you make situations which seem very, very difficult to solve to become solvable. At a certain moment, our team came to the conclusion that we don't, didn't know, but we didn't think that was an adequate answer to give to our sponsors. So we had to develop something a bit more sophisticated. And we came out with an interesting situation, and we said, surely if people are similar with each other, what we were calling commonalities, certain, certain, if you have enough commonality with someone, if you have a common language, a common culture, you're going to get on very well with each other. However, we found that wasn't the case with North and South Korea, who in our list of commonalities, 23 commonalities that we developed, they had 17 of 23 were common. And the North and South Koreans, we know where they are now, with all due respect to what's been trying to be done with North, and North Korea, that is a very, very uh, difficult issue. We found in our research that the Belfast situation of Protestants and Catholics um, was slowly getting better. Now, my Israeli students always asked, laughed when I spoke about Northern Ireland because they said, we don't understand why they don't get on. 
Catholics and Protestants are Christians. They should get on well. So I said, and how do we Jews get on? So now we understand. Okay, that, that, was, that was a good sentence. Then we could get on with some of the discussions. But things were getting better in Northern Ireland, and they have got a great deal better without it being 100%. And at that particular moment, there was a breakthrough in the tension between the northern part of, of Cyprus, where the Turks are, and the southern part of Cyprus, where the Greeks were. So we came out with an optimistic basic end line which we sent to the German government. And we said, we believe that even groups who have limited amount of commonalities can get on with each other. I'm a dreamer. I'm not sure how to do it. But I do believe that we have to try in all conflict situations to make it a little bit better. And I no, no longer use the word peace. Peace is a nice word. It's a lovely word, but I believe in the concept of reduced conflict. If you can, in any situation, I'm talking about Israel and Palestinians, in any situation, it can be personal situations, it can be ethnic situations, if you can get to reduce conflict, it's better than high-level conflict. I'll be exploring it in one of the lectures, in two lectures, one on the Palestinians and one on wars of swords and wars of words. Uh, but it's an investigation, an attempt, an ask, looking at and being very, very aware of the limitations. Never, no big dreams on this, but I think we have to always uh, look, look around. And just to conclude, the very last point uh, that I would uh, like to uh, try and deal with is something which is a little bit out of my normal range. I've been very interested in American presidents, but I've always looked at American presidents from my Israeli perspective. What was asked by one of the, uh, the groups here was for me to deal with a topic which I actually had to work quite hard on, uh, and I, I hope I've done a, a reasonable job. Uh, it's called uh, From Truman to Trump, The American Attitude to the State of Israel. And if you want to come to it and criticize me, I will be delighted because I'm only at uh, Kitabet level. I'm only at second level on that, and I don't yet know the future. So if you people can join me in that session and tell me what the future is going to be all about, I'll be delighted to know. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So um, I hope you've all enjoyed our uh, evening of introduction. I asked the professor, you did a great job of setting the table for us. You have the brochure. If you are a CSP member, um, you have your notebook. Hold up your notebook. It's like the artist. That's your notebook. So take notes in your notebook. Also, if you're a CSP member, you have your source materials for every lecture that's coming up, and it's in order of the dates. You didn't get your source materials? Okay, you should have your source material. If you didn't get your source material, you'll see me outside and I'll give you your source material if you're a CSB member. Um, how many of you are coming to Israel with us in October? Okay, so this is your month to get ready. You know, Francine, you're not going anywhere fast with the boot on, so you just roll into the lectures. Ron is retired, he'll push you, it's not a problem. This is your month to get ready. Um, and if you're not coming with us to Israel, we're taking close to 80 people. We have two rooms left. Unique trip to Israel next October. Email me, and I'll tell you more about it. 
Uh, it's called Touching the Soul and the Spirit of Israel, Digging Deeper. So we don't go plant trees and we don't see the Chagall windows all nice. Um, we dig deeper into Israeli society to understand uh, what makes Israel really beautiful, which is um, a lot of the stuff that you heard tonight. It's a complex country. It's a young country. So um, many of you think you know about Israel, and I hope that um, this month you'll learn way more uh, about Israel. And uh, if you don't know about Israel, you certainly will know, learn a lot. Uh, I hope you will join us. If you want to come to the classes, you're not a member, you can see me at the member desk outside. You finish perfectly. It's 8.32. I wish you all a wonderful rest of Sunday. See you lots over the next month. Thank you. Have a good night.